Good morning, everyone. One of the themes of the first reading in our gospel is about groups, peoples, different types, nations. And it addresses exclusivity or excluding. And our second reading from Paul is the epistles are always the ones that are kind of just wild out there. They uh, but Paul is saying, look, uh, anyone can return to God. He will take anyone back. They just need to be open. And his gifts are, are irrevocable. <clears throat> and all of us Christians should keep this in mind uh, when we think about Jewish people. They are the people of the covenant, the first one. And that covenant is not revoked. It still stands. We view the covenant, that original one, as being fulfilled but they haven't gotten there yet in that thought. Uh, so we should be very careful. Uh, Paul is addressing this in a certain way also. My friends, um, the, this issue about groups and stuff has been there. So in the first reading, uh, we see Israelites and foreigners, and they have been living amongst the Israelites. They had just come out of, Israelite had just come out of captivity. They've been hurt and damaged by that, and now they're trying to figure out, well, these, all these foreigners are living amongst us. Where do they fit in? And does God love them? And um, in Jesus' time, it was Jews and Gentiles. And uh, in the early church, it was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You mean to see what's happening? What about today? Today, it seems, it's Christians versus Christians fighting. And so uh, with all this, I pondered uh, for the many, many, many self-professed Christians in our world, um, do they presume to be in the group of the elect? Remember, the elect is another way of saying God's chosen, meaning for us, the, the people are going to heaven. Or uh, do we presume to be in that group? Or uh, do we consider some to be in the other group? Meaning, for whatever reason, they're not measuring up and they're not going to get into heaven. But friends, as we know from sacred scriptures, presumptions and assumptions like these about who is going to heaven and who is not gets turned upside down. It's one thing to be inquisitive. I wonder, I wonder. Because I've heard when we get there, we're probably going to be, oh my goodness, how did you get in here? And those people will be like, how did you get in here? <laughs> it's another thing to be judgmental about it and to uh, condemn and say you will not because particularly of your hair color or skin color or because you, you don't follow the exact rituals as we do. You sound familiar from the Old Testament? The prophet Isaiah, uh, we begin to understand, he already began to put this forth because he says foreigners will join <clears throat> with the Lord and the Lord himself will bring them to his holy mountain. And he said, for my house shall be a house of prayer. Looking to your right, we have that inscribed on the very wood of the church of our house. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. It was too short for me to put the rest of it in there. <laughs> For all peoples. The wood, the wood was too short. So my friends, this is a very stunning pronouncement in its time because uh, the Israelites 
who were, had been in exile presumed that they alone were so favored by God, particularly because they were chosen and because they had suffered. And certainly Isaiah would speak words of comfort and encouragement to the Israelites to instill hope because it was a severe time for them. But exclusivity, these would not be the words of the prophet Isaiah, as we heard this morning. It would be just the opposite. Anyone who would come and offer him proper respect and love and service, he will accept their sacrifices. And then with the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one of God, Jesus of Nazareth, we began to see how this might look, this house of prayer for all peoples. The gospel account proclaimed today tells of an extraordinary event in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. A Canaanite woman, a despised foreigner, not just a foreigner, but someone who was hated by the Jews and vice versa, Canaanites didn't like them either, does what is unthinkable in her time. She approaches a Jewish rabbi requesting something. Women in Jesus' time don't talk to men they do not know, especially out in public. And they certainly wouldn't be talking to people from another tribe, especially when they know the animosity between them. Will you see what she's doing? There's something else. In Jesus' time, I'm just, <laughs> don't get mad at me, <laughs> the males were preferred. So she is asking a grace for a girl. I know it's hard for us. We just can't understand it, but that's the mentality. This is, you need to understand the context of what's happening to understand fully what's going on. There is a dialogue that ensues, and it's startling to us but to be expected in the time of Jesus. Jesus initially is silent, we're told, when this woman approaches. Then Jesus seems to ignore her request. Then he says he has only come, and he's speaking to all of them, including her, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then using a typical slang of his day, he basically calls her a dog. Now, um, it's a derogatory term, but she is quite familiar with it because she's called it all the time by the Jews. You see what I'm getting at? She's familiar. But my friends, um, for me, she takes that term and takes power over it in the way that many times in the 40s, 60s, the 80s, terms were thrown at certain groups of people and some of those groups have taken the word back and they use it amongst themselves. And you are not allowed to say it anymore. I feel this is what she's doing. She's taking control over the thing that they levy against her. All the while, the disciples, because she is crying out in the Greek, she's not just saying something. She's not just talking. She's actually crying. And she's doing it over and over again. That is the implication of the verb that's used. The disciples want to shoo her away because she's annoying. It's politely written in English. But they want her gone because she won't shut up. And much to their amazement, she doesn't stop. Even when she's insulted, she accepts the insult 
And she says, I'll take the scraps that fall. Now, in English, it says master, but in Greek, it is not master. The word is Lord. It is different. She says, I will accept the scraps that come that falls from the table of my Lord. That is a completely different meaning and understanding. She implies that she is not just any dog, but she is the dog of her Lord. I know what that's like. You guys have heard me joke about, I remember I've told you a few years ago, I'm going to be the court jester for Jesus. I'm going to be his clown. Do you remember why I said that? Because the clown and court jester is right there next to the king. I thought it was pretty clever of me. I don't think Jesus thinks it's so clever. <laughs> but I thought I'll accept being his clown because I'll be right next to him. Acting a fool, apparently, but doing so. So, um, my friends, the other thing, there was a two meaning to the word dog that was used in the Aramaic to the Greek. One meaning is a street dog that's wild and astray. And the other one means a family pet, a lap dog. You see, which one do you think Jesus was using and which one do you think the disciples were using? Certainly to our ears, this whole dialogue seems just unpeculiar associated with Jesus of Nazareth who is compassionate and kind. So what is going on here? Well, Jesus seems to be setting up a great teaching and uh, it will be remarkable to everyone who is present, the disciples, anyone in earshot, and to the Canaanite woman. First, the woman, in the original text of the Greek, again, she is not just talking softly, she is crying out. And she's moaning, uh, and uh, she is not letting up. Recall Peter, there's a scene just before this. Peter cries out to the Lord also, Lord, save me. And he really needed to scream because remember where he was? In the Sea of Galilee. He got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and then he started to sink because he became afraid because the winds were loud and thrashing. Now think of the Canaanite woman. She too has to scream and cry out aloud, but not because of waves of water, but because of waves of hatred and discrimination an intimidation against her. And here it is. Jesus contrasts faith and perseverance with the lack of faith and fear. If the Canaanite woman is fearful, nothing in her demeanor shows it because she is not only crying, but then she switches and she begins to, I will take the scraps. That is not someone who is afraid. That's someone who has quite a bit of confidence because she assassined Jesus. <laughs> sort of, right? The scriptures indicate to the men who are in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, they were terrified and were lacking in faith. My friends, um, just a side note. Jesus is also recorded as crying out. It's the same words used for Peter and for the Canaanite woman. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus cried out 
and breathed his last. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he is quoting a psalm, and that psalm is actually a psalm of confidence. This particular sentence doesn't sound like it, but it actually is a psalm of confidence and faith in God. Luke 23, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The only one that's kind of a little bit different is John's gospel. John just says, and Jesus said, it is finished, and surrendered to God. Friends, three times before this event, Jesus has lamented about the lack of faith in the people closest to him. On the Sermon of the Mount, chapter 6, line 30, Jesus comments about their lack of faith. On the Sea of Galilee, the whole story, Matthew 8, 26, Matthew 14, 31, Jesus laments that they don't have very much faith. So this is what Jesus is up to. So let us look at how he goes about it. The first thing he does is we're told he's silent. So Jesus' initial silence is not rejection, but a giving of time for everyone to know that God is present. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. In the silence, one can listen and one can change. Sometimes with all the madness around you, you can't hear anything, and the chaos prevents you from doing anything. So Jesus is stopping everything so that everyone can listen and everyone can change. Hi, little one. Welcome back. And for the woman, this seems to happen. In Jesus' refusals, she changes her tone. She no longer is screaming and yelling and moaning to him, but she changes. And one of our saints, St. Claude, wrote, the woman seems to have caught on to the Lord's scheme. I love that. She figured him out. Oh, you're up to something, aren't you? I'm going to play along with you. And although Jesus seems irritated by the woman, not as much as the disciples, he welcomes her passion and her persistence. And he is not put off at all. I will suggest this is me. I think he actually enjoys it. Not in some weird way. He likes that she is not letting up, no matter what. My friends, what does this woman do? She does not appeal to what is just. She does not appeal to saying, I'm entitled. She appeals to his mercy. Lord, save, save my daughter. She appeals to his divine mercy. The woman acknowledges the special place of the Israelites. She doesn't deny it. Yeah, they are the chosen people. That's why she says what she says. But somehow she seems to understand something that the disciples don't. When Jesus goes looking for the lost, she ultimately will be one of them. The woman receives what she cried out for and even more. We are told in the scriptures that Jesus gives her the ultimate praise. Great is your faith. And let it be done according to your will, he says, as you wish. Perhaps we should then take time and look at this reading. Let us today discern 
about our preconceived ideas and notions and assumptions, presumptions about who is going to heaven and who is not going to heaven. Maybe we should also discern when Jesus is silent and refuses us, what is he up to? What is he scheming? <laughs> Maybe we should discern who is worthy and unworthy a little bit better. So I ask, what can we learn then about faith and trust in God and about his mercy and his justice that comes from this account in the day of Jesus of Nazareth? But also, is there something for us to learn from those that we do not think are part of the chosen? And when, um, oftentimes, I'll pray, and it's not, it's not for myself, I'll pray and ask, and it's no. Jesus, I would like no. How about nope? Okay, Jesus, how about nope? <laughs> no, no, no. So now I'm like, okay, you must be up to something. I'll play along with you, <laughs> right? <laughs> so for all of you, when it's no, or he seems silent, it seems like he's up to something else for our good. Here is my caveat to you. The woman, with her great faith and her persistence, Jesus says, let it be done according to your will. We pray all the time, Lord, let your will be done. Lord, let your will be done. But it seems that God sometimes will say to you, let your will be done. You better be careful about what it is you're willing. <laughs> because this is presented in the positive, but there is a negative to that. The person who says, I don't believe in you, I don't like you, I want nothing to do with you and your people. The atheist, maybe God will say to them, let your will be done then. And in that, there would be no heaven. But that would have been their choice. So let us be careful. Hmm? Amen. Better just to put our will to his. Whatever your will is, let it be mine. Oh, that's where we're going. <laughs> Okay, here we go then. And I just put my hand in his and let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> Amen.